that we're about to start ends, Daniel ends with the resurrection of the dead. Uh, one of the clearest Old Testament descriptions of resurrection hope that we have because we have a king who has beaten death, Jesus Christ, the living one. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer before we start looking at the book of Daniel together. Father, I thank you for this day once again. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine that we see outside. Thank you for the gift of being able to meet in this public space. Lord, we do not take it for granted. We are truly grateful. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us now as we look at Daniel. Help us to, um, to learn from this passage and from, from this book. And um, I pray that we would, by the end of this um, series, that our hearts would just be thrilled at the beautiful reality that we are a part of, that Jesus wins. And because he wins, so do we. Lord, I thank you that we have a king who will never be dethroned. And I pray that you would just throw our hearts with Jesus this morning. In the name of our Savior Jesus, I ask. Amen. All righty. Well, this morning I am really excited to be starting with you a new series on the book of Daniel. And this series should take us through the fall. Um, and perhaps, yeah, maybe even up to January. I haven't mapped it all out yet, but um, it'll be at least probably 14 or so sermons. Um, and we're going to be working our way through Daniel. Now, in your English Bible, the, the book of Daniel is lumped in with the writings of some of the prophets of Israel. Prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then we find the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is 12 chapters long, and it is um, in a different place, actually, in the Hebrew ordering of the Bible, the Bible Jesus would have looked at. It's in the section, the third section of the Bible called the writings there. But that's a different topic for another day. Daniel comes right after Ezekiel and is 12 chapters long. And um, as some of you may know, you know, the chapters are not a part of the original um, Bible manuscripts. They were added later as a helpful way to navigate around a book. I mean, can you, an illustration that's came to my mind is, you know, you've got a, a cliff to climb and you don't know where to put your hands and, and do the handholds. So you climb it once and then you want to tell your friend, wow, you want to put your hand here when you get to that spot and you want to put your hand there and put your foot there at that spot. Um, that's what the chapters are. People who read through the Bible found helpful places to put breaks and divisions so that you can say, uh, turn to chapter 11 really quickly, verse 10, and, and someone can do that. It, it, put your hand here and put your foot there. Uh, mental um, kind of handholds and footholds for navigating through this massive Bible that we have and small books of the Bible like Daniel. Now... The book of Daniel is almost certainly not written in its final form 
by Daniel himself. The book talks about Daniel in the third person. Daniel is a character within the book, and much of Daniel was probably recorded and written down by Daniel himself, but someone or some people, Jewish scribes, writing after Daniel took the writings of Daniel, the, pro the visions that Daniel had, the stories about Daniel's three friends, and they stitched them together into a book that tells us a powerful, powerful story. The main goal, the main theme of Daniel is to tell us how God, the God of the Bible, is going to defeat all evil, including death. It ends with the resurrection. And how in defeating evil, the way he's going to do it, okay, is he's going to reestablish his rule over the world that was supposed to be done by Adam. Adam was supposed to rule for God. Remember we read that in Genesis earlier? He didn't. He listened to Satan instead. And so, the book of Daniel shows how God reverses that by replacing Adam with a faithful son of Adam, a son of man, who's going to reign as king after defeating death, paying for the sins of his people, and he is going to defeat the devil and all his works. So, Daniel, if you want to summarize the message of Daniel in a nutshell, you can summarize it with two words. Jesus wins. Truly. <laughs> Jesus wins. And if you wanted to add a little bit, Jesus wins, and because he wins, we win too. We become part of his kingdom. Or you could say, God wins through Jesus. Uh, yeah, so many different ways, but Jesus winning, that is the big theme of Daniel. And that's why Daniel is so important for our understanding, not just of um, you know, the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. So as we work through this book, I just want to warn you that some parts of the book of Daniel are incredibly complex. They're going to really require us to put on our thinking caps. And even then, with your thinking cap on, it's still going to be a big challenge. Because Daniel is a complicated book. And it requires a massive knowledge of the Hebrew Bible. Brian wrote me a small commentary. He's actually still in the process of writing it. Brian Verrett on the book of Daniel to help me as I work through, because there's not a lot of great resources, evangelical resources, on the book of Daniel, actually. Um, and so Brian has been very helpful, and I'm super thankful for that. If ever, any of you want a copy of that, I'd be happy to give that to you. But Daniel um, is a very complex book, and part of what makes it so complex is Daniel is Daniel's developing themes from Genesis He's relying heavily on Isaiah, and we'll see a lot of that as we work through the book. And it requires a knowledge of the whole Bible. But we'll do our best to package it in a way that you can hopefully wrap your arms around and walk away understanding the book a lot better and really um, in just in enjoying the truth that Jesus is the king. And we're a part of a kingdom that is unstoppable with a king that will never be dethroned. It's, it's such a, a precious truth for Christians. And I want to do my best as we work through to keep you engaged in this. Um, 
a lot of the stories in the book of Daniel are really, really exciting. Like kids think of somebody being thrown into a den with lions. You know, can you imagine? Imagine you were at the zoo and you get thrown into the lion cage. You know, that's an exciting story. And God rescues Daniel from the lions. We'll learn about that in a few weeks. Or imagine you're at a bonfire and you fall in. Well, three guys get thrown into a fiery furnace. And God rescues them from the fiery furnace. And there's crazy dreams of beasts and dragons that Daniel had. I mean, there's all kinds of exciting things that are going to help us, I hope, stay engaged, stay excited about what we're learning, even as there's some complex things. So my goal in preaching this book is to fan the flames of your love for Jesus even more and to help you rejoice in the the truth that I said already. We are part of a kingdom that can never be shaken, and we follow a king who can never be dethroned. So that's why we're in Daniel. And there's three things that we're going to do for the rest of our time. First, we're going to give a really quick summary of Daniel's parts. You'll want your handout for that. Second, we're going to dive a little deeper, especially into the first big section of Daniel. And then third, we'll just close with a few points of application. So pull out that handout. This is a quick flyover, Daniel. This is, our, this is your roadmap. And I, I, I ask you, I'll, I'll have it here next week too. Take this handout and put it in your Bible in the book of Daniel and use it. This is a handout that Brian Verrett put together. Why well, I, I put together the handout, but the outline is his. Uh, it's similar to some of the other outlines out there, but I think especially for the second half of the book, um, Brian has, has helpfully um, just put together an outline. I think that, I, I agree, I think his outline is, is a really good one. So... Here it is. Basically, Daniel is written in two parts with an introduction. It's a two-part book with an intro, okay? And chapters, chapter one is the introduction. Chapters two to seven are part one of the book, and they are separated from the second part of the book, chapters eight to 12, in a way that is so obvious that anyone who read it could catch it if they knew Hebrew, which I know it a little bit, most of you don't, but, but you just have to take my word for it. it. It's so obvious that if you know Hebrew, you could catch it. Why? Because chapters 2 to 7 are not in Hebrew. They're in Aramaic. So if you open Daniel in the original languages, and my computer software, as I'm scrolling through Daniel, you, you read chapter 1, it's Hebrew. Boom. Chapter 2, all the way up to chapter 7, are Aramaic. You're like, what was that? Similar, but different. And then 8 to 12 are Hebrew again. It'd be like if you were reading your kids a story in English, and then all of a sudden, it switched to Spanish for six pages. And you're like, well, I don't know Spanish. What, like, what, what gives? And then all of a sudden, after six pages, it switches back to English. And you would probably ask yourself, why? Why would the writer do that? Why is it different? Well, that's why Daniel has it there. Why is it different? Well, it's, it's to separate it. 
to distinguish it so that you say this section is different. It belongs by itself. Yeah, that's the point. So you can see that Daniel chapters 2 to 7 in your handout, I highlighted them in three different colors. That's because they are carefully organized, chapters 2 to 7, into three matching pairs called a chiasm in Hebrew. Key is the Greek letter for X, and a chiasm, you can kind of see how a chiasm forms one half of the letter X. It's kind of like a, a V. It's sideways V or a lesser greater than symbol. It's kind of hard to explain, but you can, you can see it in the matching pairs. They go in, and the, I forget which colors I used. I don't have it up there. What's the middle colors, Johanna? Blue. blue. So the blue, can you see how like a side of an X, you get you, moving into the blue and then out? That's a chiasm, a Xism or whatever. Um, and it's actually a really popular way to organize um, a section of writing in Hebrew. We don't really use that. Uh, too much anymore. So that's an Aramaic, a chiasm. So it really stands out. Why is this different? Oh, because they belong together. They form a series of matching pairs. They're different. They're to be interpreted together. Then chapters 8 to 12 switch back to Hebrew, and they're the second main part of the book. This section is like a Hebrew commentary unpacking and explaining further for the reader who just read chapters 2 to 7, what those chapters are about a little more. And just like there are three matching pairs in chapters 2 to 7, chapters 8 to 12 actually have three distinguishable sections that correspond to chapters 2 to 7. So chapters 2 to 7 are a chiasm and they're matching pairs of three. Chapters 8 to 12 have three sections that explain them further. They're not a chiasm, chapters 8 to 12. They're not matching. But chapter 8 and chapter 9 are two different sections, and then chapters 10 to 12 make up the third section. And you can see that there in your handout. And we'll, we'll talk about them a little more in depth in a minute. Just like my illustration with a children's book, if it switched to Spanish and then switched back to English, you probably would think that when it switched back to English, it might explain why it switched to Spanish, right? <laughs> what was that all about? Well, that's the point. As soon as you get done with the Aramaic and you hit chapter 8, you're like, what was that all about? And chapter 8 starts telling you. The kingdoms and the vision of chapter 2 and chapter 7 get named. Not all of them. I'll cover that in a minute. But you start to get a little more clarity. The Messiah, who's the stone of chapter 2, and the Son of Man who ascends the cloud in verse chapter 7 and gets enthroned, and the king, God's reigning king, a human who ascends into heaven, he's described more in chapter 9 as this Messiah who's cut off after providing offering for the sins of the people. And chapter 12 details the resurrection from the dead. So there, all of this 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 is unpacking chapters 2 
to 7. And chapter 1, like I said, sets the introduction. Does that, is that clear? Kind of start to get your idea? This is really important for understanding any book of the Bible, but especially Daniel. To be able to get your arms around the whole book, you have to be able to have a working outline. Like, how does the book hang together? Now, let's look deeper now. Digging into Daniel. The introduction to Daniel, chapter 1, it sets the stage for the rest of the story. Just like any introduction would set the stage. Where are we? Who are the main characters? What's the point? Well, let's summarize. We're not going to read the whole chapter. That'll be next week. In Daniel 1, the God of Israel himself, Israel's God, has just handed Israel over into the hands of her enemies, the Babylonians. The Israelite king has been handed into the arms of, or into the Babylonian um, king's power. They are conquered, not because Babylon is really strong, though they are, not because God, the God of the Jews, is weak. He's not weak. No. God gives Israel over. He takes down his own people's kingdom because of their sin. Just like Adam rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, and he had to be exiled from Eden. Remember? Adam is like in the promised land of his dreams, in Eden. And he rebels and he disobeys God. And what does he have to do? He, has to, he gets kicked out of the garden. And eventually, Genesis 11, we, we follow the train wreck of Adam's family. Things get worse and worse and worse. And in Genesis 11, the family of Adam, they're about as far away from Eden as you can get. Who can yell out, where are they in Genesis 11? They're attempting to build a big tower. Do you know where they are? Babylon. Babylon! You leave Eden. You leave the land. You're in exile. You're in rebellion against God. And you end in Babylon. Guess what we have with the story of Israel? A repeat of the same theme. They're in the promised land. They're going to stay there as long as they're faithful to God. They rebel against God, and where do they go? Babylon. They're exiled in the land of Shinar, in Babylon. That's the setting of the story. And in Daniel 1, we read that in Babylon, many of the best and the brightest kids of Israel are taken. It's like they look at a family and they're like, who's the best looking? Who's the smartest? That definitely wouldn't have been me in my family. And they say, you're going to Babylon, okay? And you're going to be taken into the court of the king, and you are going to be basically indoctrinated in the religion and the morals and the ways of Babylon. You are going to become, for all intents and purposes, Babylonian. And so the story of Daniel starts with these young men, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
And they all have Hebrew names about Yahweh. Daniel means God is just, and or God is my judge, I mean, and God is my help. There's all these biblical names, and they're given names that are Babylonian names. Belteshazzar, and these Babylonian names, and they are brought into Babylon's training program. And instead of bowing to the ways of Babylon, we learn in chapter 1, in the introduction, that these men choose to be faithful to a different king who rules over a different kingdom. They choose to be faithful to Yahweh the God of all the earth. Their allegiance lies with the king of heaven and earth, even as they live in Babylon. So they're living in Babylon, but they're faithful to Yahweh. That's the introduction to this book. And so already in chapter 1, you already start to see, and we'll look at this more next week, immediate significance for our lives today. What does faithfulness to Jesus as our king look like in a country that does not bow down to the lordship of Jesus. That'll be an ongoing theme as we look at the book of Daniel. As Christians living outside of Eden, we're not to the new creation yet. What does faithfulness to Jesus look like in Babylon, in outside of our future promised land, living faithfully under, yeah, there may be some overlap. America's definitely not as bad as a North Korea, but we, we are not the promised land. We are living outside of our future home. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. What does it look like to be faithful to our king? So that's chapter one. Then the Hebrew stops and we hit the Aramaic of verses chapters 2 to 7, and remember I said that's a, that's a chiasm, it's a series of statements or ideas that are arranged in matching but reverse order, so that the ends match, and the next two in match, and the two in the middle match, and you can hopefully see what I mean with the titles I gave as you look at your handout. There's a three-paired chiasm, and I mentioned before the Bible is filled with chiasms. We find them all over. It's just, they almost wrote them without even knowing that they're dead. It was just a standard, just like you start a letter nowadays by saying, dear so-and-so, and then they just wrote in chiasms. It was, that's amazing how their minds were able to do it. I mean, some chiasms are 20 plus, you know, parts long, and they're able to keep it all together in their heads. So, Let's look at each matching pair and talk about the points they make now for a few minutes. Chapters 2 and 7 are really the most important parts because they frame the whole thing. They're like brackets around it. You'll want to flip your hand over at this point and look at the pictures on the back of your handout. In chapter 2, Daniel interprets a dream that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has. Question for you. Can you remember in the Bible another man who interprets a dream for a pagan king? Joseph. 
Joseph. And Daniel, just like Joseph, interprets this dream with the help of God's Spirit. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 38, we read, Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, talking about Joseph, in whom is the spirit of the gods? Now, obviously, Pharaoh is no theologian. He doesn't know that Joseph has the spirit of the one true God, but the point still holds. Pharaoh recognizes the hand of God in Joseph's dream interpretation skills. And the same goes for King Nebuchadnezzar in the story of Daniel. He interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Daniel interprets the dreams of the king in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 9, Nebuchadnezzar says something. He says, because you can do this because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Again, he's no theologian yet, although he learns about the one true God by the end of chapter 4. But Daniel interprets dreams for the king by the power of the spirit of God. Daniel is like a new Joseph. Now, that's not just a clever connection. Oh, cool. No, this is actually really, really important for what the author of Daniel, whoever that was, is trying to tell us throughout the whole story of Daniel in chapters 2, well, chapter 1, up to chapter 7 especially. Daniel is pictured as a new Joseph. And we will really dive into why next week and in the weeks to come. But suffice it to say, for now, that the reason for this is because the author of Daniel is, knows that Joseph, in the Bible story, is intended by the author of Genesis to be a picture of the coming Jesus. Just like the brothers all bow down to Joseph, so the son of Judah in Genesis 49.10 will be like a lion, and all the brothers and even all the nations will bow down to the son of Judah. Joseph is a picture of Jesus, the son of Judah, who is coming. And so Daniel becomes like a new Joseph, like a picture of Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar actually bows down and worships Daniel in Daniel chapter 2. We'll see that in a couple weeks. Daniel, now he's not supposed to worship Daniel. We'll talk about that more. But Daniel is a picture for us of Jesus who's coming because Joseph was. So if Joseph is a picture of Daniel, uh, Jesus, and Daniel is a picture of Jesus, intended by the biblical authors, then Daniel is meant to image Jesus for us. Now, let's look at the dream. In the dream, chapter 2, we see a huge image, an image of a man. Where have you heard the language of man and image before? Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. Humans are the image of God. Adam was created in God's image with the task to rule the world. And so here in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we see a big image representing a man and all the kingdoms, the rulers, the rulings of men. The head is gold and represents the kingdom of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The chest is, and the arms are silver, 
We find out in chapter 8 that they represent the kingdom of the Medes and Persians who will defeat Babylon. We actually read of the defeat in chapter 5 of the book. The middle and the thighs are made of bronze. And we find out again in chapter 8 that this is the kingdom of Greece, which is going to conquer Persia and the Medes someday in the future. And then in the vision of the king, the legs, they're made of iron and partly mixed with clay. And this represents a fourth kingdom that the text says is stronger than all the others, just like iron. If you're going to make a plow and you have some options, gold, silver, bronze, or iron, what are you going to pick? Iron. Might not be as pretty, but boy, it'll hold up a lot better, won't it? It's stronger than the gold and the silver and the bronze, and this kingdom is not named in the Hebrew commentary. And man, let me tell you, because that kingdom is not named, it opens Pandora's box for later biblical readers. What is this kingdom? Who is it? Where? Maybe it's North Korea. Maybe it's Saddam Hussein. I mean, seriously, maybe it's Rome. What is this kingdom? And, and theologians have debated this for 2,000 years and more. What is this coming kingdom? A lot of scholars today think that this fourth kingdom is Rome, since in history, Rome conquered Greece. And there's maybe some positives to that view. There's some challenges, too. And the view, though, that I'm going to argue for as we work our way through is that the fourth kingdom, which is somehow different than all the rest, it's different because it represents the spiritual kingdom of the evil one, of Satan himself. It's Satan's evil kingdom that supports and stands behind and even mixes with the clay humans who are made of dust. And it includes Rome and even Israel itself, when Israel crucifies the Messiah. So, man, there's a lot of debate about that. And you might end up, after our time in Daniel, saying, no, I really think it's Rome. That's okay. Well, I'll make my best case as we go. But think through it with me. Now, Though there's a lot of debate about the fourth kingdom, there's no debate about what happens next in King Nebuchadnezzar's vision. A rock cut not by human hands. You can see the rock in the picture. It comes from heaven. Isn't, no human cut this out. It comes from the mountain of God itself in heaven, this picture of where God dwells. And it smashes the statue in the feet. And the whole statue comes crashing down. Jesus wins. Everybody agrees on that. And in my opinion, viewing the feet as the spiritual kingdom of Satan makes a lot of sense here. Because Jesus did not defeat Rome on the cross. He defeated the devil. And this rock represents Jesus' defeat of Satan's kingdom. When you crush Satan, you dethrone all kingdoms. That's why Babylon comes down. Persia and the Medes come down. The Greeks come down. Every other kingdom comes down. The statue is crashed down 
when the root is hit, the beast himself, Satan, the craftiest among the beasts of the field, is destroyed and this kingdom comes down. But I'm getting ahead of myself because the language of beasts doesn't show up till chapter 7. This rock represents the end-time kingdom of God that will fill the whole earth, the kingdom that we are a part of under the kingship of our Jesus. Daniel gets this image from Isaiah, actually. Isaiah chapter 11, which talks about how at the end of days, which is very interesting, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's vision is set to occur at the end of days, which means the days of the Messiah, the, the days of Jesus. At the end of days, Isaiah, Isaiah says, in Isaiah 11, verse 9, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up as the highest of mountains and all the nations will stream to it. And here you have this rock, which Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28 says is the Messiah, the stone that causes men to stumble. And you have a rock that comes and it crushes all the kingdoms of the world and it becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Isaiah and Daniel are worshiping the same God. They're, they're working from the same themes. Now, what chapter does chapter 2 correspond with in your handout? Chapter 7. And in chapter 7, if you look at the second picture on the back of your handout, you'll see there's four beasts there. And these beasts represent four kingdoms. Three of them are named again, and the fourth is not. And in the days of the fourth kingdom, Daniel 7 tells us that one like a son of man, a son of Adam, will ascend through the clouds of heaven and he will sit down on a heavenly throne and he will be given what Adam was supposed to have and lost. He will be given dominion to rule over heaven and earth and he'll be given authority over the beasts again. And his kingdom will never end. Jesus will reign victorious over the beastly kingdoms of earth. Their authority is taken away. Jesus wins. An image of God has been re regained the throne again over all creation. It's Genesis 3 in reverse. The fall is reversed. Instead of being driven from the presence of God, the last Adam, Jesus, ascends to the throne. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And now we'll move through the other matching pairs a lot quicker. In chapter 3 of Daniel, we read Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to bow before another great image. And this image corresponds to the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold in his dream, so now he builds the whole image of gold. What's he trying to say, you think? There ain't going to be no silver. The buck stops here. I'm the whole image. And he sets it up in this big plane, and he says everybody's got to worship this golden image that represents him. Did it look like him or not? I don't know. It's an image. God says don't make images, right? Because humans are to be the image of God. And we're not supposed to worship humans as the image. We're, we're supposed to worship God and reflect his worth. But Nebuchadnezzar commands all people everywhere, worship the image. That's what Satan said. Set yourself up as king, Adam. Nebuchadnezzar is doing an evil, evil thing. But because of 
their allegiance to the God of heaven, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't know where Daniel is in the story. We don't read about it, but they do not bow to this image. And they're thrown into the fiery furnace, but they're delivered by an angel of God. Chapter 6, we read of another king, King Darius of the Medes and Persians, who conquered Babylon. And Daniel works for King Darius now instead of for the Babylonians. And in chapter 6, Darius makes a decree that everyone everywhere must pray only to him. Man, these kings, they do not get it, do they? And if you don't pray to him, you get thrown into a den of beasts, of lions, to be torn and consumed. But just like his three friends refused to worship the image of an earthly kingdom in, Gen in chapter 3, so in chapter 6, which is parallel to chapter 3, Daniel refuses to worship and pray to a human as if he were God. I'm not going to worship the image of God. I worship God. And so he is thrown into lion's den for his rebellion. But God rescues him from the jaws of the lions, and they do not hurt him. Just like the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is given authority over the literal beasts because of his faithfulness to God, so Daniel is given authority, right? Daniel's life is intended by the author to be a little movie trailer of what Jesus will be like when he comes, okay? So Daniel, remember he's picturing Jesus, right? Daniel in the lion's den, just like Noah in the ark, a new Adam has authority over the beasts. Just like Adam had authority over the beasts, they don't hurt him. So you throw Daniel, who's supposed to picture for us what this last Adam, what this conquering king will be like, and he's got authority. God closed the mouths of the lions. They don't hurt him. And if that's the case, how much more will the Son of Man have authority over human beasts? These beastly empires, these kings who set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed in Daniel 7, the beasts of Daniel's vision. So, remember, recap what we've seen. Chapters 2 and 7, one like a son of Adam will be a stone that takes down Satan's kingdom and sets up the eternal kingdom of God. In both chapters 3 and 6, then, we see that God can deliver his faithful servants from beastly kings of earth who rage against him, provided that these faithful servants do not worship the evil men, but instead worship the Lord and him only. Does that make you think of a story in the New Testament? You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only? In the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4, Jesus, the last Adam, what does Satan offer him? All the kingdoms of the world. Pick gold, pick silver, pick bronze. What do you want, Jesus? I'll give you them all. And, and why? Because he says they've been given to me. Satan is the ruler of the world. And Jesus says, no. I'm not going to worship the image. <laughs> worship Yahweh your God and serve him only, Satan. I'm headed to the cross to defeat you. He's the faithful son of God. He's come down to replace all the kingdoms with the kingdom of God, which will have no end. This is what the biblical authors are doing. They're all over the book of Daniel and the book of Genesis and the book of Isaiah with, with what they're doing with Jesus there as he stays faithful to the Lord as the last Adam. And now... In the third and final pairing of the chapters in Daniel, right in the middle, chapters 4 and 5, 
Um, chapter 4, you read about how King Nebuchadnezzar gets lifted up with pride, but God humbles him by, very interestingly, reducing him to what? A beast. He gets humbled and he becomes like an animal. He even eats grass for a time. This image is really terrifying and is supposed to be really clear. Pride and rebellion against God renders us beast-like, animal-like. When we listen to Satan, the devil, it makes us like beasts. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar? It's a vivid image an unfolding of what we saw in chapter 2 and chapter 7. Remember, the image with a head of gold that represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And when humans who bear the image of God rebel against God, chapter 7 shows what they become like. They become like beasts. Remember, this golden image, you're like, oh, that's a pretty metal image. It's representing all these humans in rebellion against God. What are they really? <gasps> chapter 7 pulls back the clouds, you say. Oh, man, they're beasts, terrifying beasts. Sin renders the image of God beast-like. We turn to our various passions and pleasures and follow every urge of the flesh and every whim and lie of the devil, and we do not follow the one true God. But at the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he's proudly humbled. His pride leads him to be revealed for what he really is, a beast. And he's broken, and he repents. Not so for his son in chapter 5. Belteshazzar walks in great pride in chapter 5, and then his kingdom is ripped from his grasp by the Medes and the Persians. The point of Daniel 4 and 5 can be summarized by the words of King Nebuchadnezzar, actually himself, in chapter 4, verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar says now, and when he's lifted up again, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. He's the king, not me. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And here's the point of chapters 4 and 5. Those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. The king of heaven, God himself, has the power to humble human kings in rebellion against him. And one day, chapters 2 and 7 reveal, there will be a human one who humbled himself and then was exalted. Daniel 9 talks about his humbling. He's cut off for the sins of his people. So again, Daniel 2 and 7 God's kingdom defeats all others through the work of the Messiah. Chapters 3 and 6. God is able to rescue his faithful subjects from lions and fire and every deed done against them that is evil. Chapters 4 and 5. God is able to take down the pride of human kings and of any nation under heaven, even Israel, in chapter 1, who he's handed over into the hands of the Babylonians because of their rebellion. And now, really quick, in chapter 8, Remember, this is the second section now in Hebrew. It's unpacking what you read about in chapters 2 to 7. You read more details on the second and third kingdom in chapters um, 2 to 7. So uh, chapter 8 talks about the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks who come after Babylon. 
chapter 9, we read details on the fourth kingdom, which is not named the mystery kingdom, right? The one which I said is most debated, obviously, because it's not named. And we also read about the Messiah, Jesus, and his kingdom, and how he'll defeat death and pay for the sins of his people and even be cut off. That's chapter 9, unpacking more about the messianic kingdom in chapters 2 and 7. Finally, chapters 10 to 12 are a bit of a roller coaster. They're a dizzying blur of different battles and kings from all the different kingdoms described in the book, the second, the third, and the fourth kingdoms. And all of these details end in chapter 12 with a picture of when the saints of God inherit the kingdom through resurrection. Their resurrection is the final mark of the victory that God has over the kingdom of Satan. And it corresponds to God's ability to deliver his faithful servants through fire and from lions. He can do better than that. He can raise them all from the dead to life everlasting. So chapter 12 is the grand summary of it all. You want to see God's kingdom really shine? He beats the last enemy, death itself, which Daniel's reflection is an unpacking of Isaiah chapter 26, where he rolls back the veil that is over all people, death itself. That's Daniel in a nutshell. And now let's talk about a few application points. First, I hope that you see that if you even have a fighting chance, if you're even to have a fighting chance of understanding a Bible's book's main message, you can't just read a couple verses a day from it, right? You, to put your arms around the whole thing and see how it all fits together, it's a really good idea to read the whole thing in one sitting at one point. Or get a hold of an outline like this one. I think this one's a good one. Um, there are some others that have slightly different takes, but chapters 2 to 7 especially are agreed on. Everybody thinks that's a chiasm. They, they agree with that for the most part. So, so seeing how that all works really helps you as you work through a book of the Bible. And so as we work through Daniel, I, you know, pr practical application, my encouragement to you would be to work through it without outline in hand. Read it at least once a week in your devotions. Um, read a chapter. Maybe the chapter we're going to be in for the next week. So this next week, we're going to be in chapter 1. So we'll, we'll, we'll cover the whole of chapter 1. So my encouragement to you would be, even maybe Sunday morning next week, before you come in, read chapter 1. Carl's been reading Daniel, which is great in his Bible times. So read Daniel with me, and let's learn together. Daniel really impacts. If you grasp a lot of Daniel, even part of it, as we get through this big book, um, it really impacts how you read it a lot of the rest of the Bible, including the book of Revelation. Revelation, you cannot understand it if you don't understand the book of Daniel and Isaiah and all the other prophets. Revelation is at the end for a reason. It assumes that you've read and understood everything that comes up to it. So my encouragement is that you work through Daniel with me, and, and let's try to be learners together of this amazing book. Another thing... Um, that I just want to encourage you with. As you know, um, 
we are in an election year, right? And the election is only a, was a, not even a month away. And we're going to elect not a king, but a, a leader of our country. And there's a lot of chaos politically right now. A lot of fighting, bickering, division. And I have just been so encouraged as I read Daniel to remember that America is not on the list of eternal kingdoms. Okay? Like, there is only one kingdom that will never fall. One eternal kingdom. There is only one king to rule them all. And it's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And friends, in Daniel 7, after this king ascends the clouds, he gives the kingdom, his kingdom, to the saints of the Most High God. We are, as the author of Hebrews says, we are receiving a kingdom that can never be shaken. Why? Because we have a king who will never be dethroned. Jesus, remember, as Stephen is getting stoned in the book of Acts, you'd think he was being shaken, right? What gives him strength? I see heaven opened and the Son of Man from Daniel 7 seated at the right hand of the throne of power so that even as the beastly kingdom of Judah, whose temple is going to get firebombed by God in AD 70, even as they are raging against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah is seated in the heavens and he reigns as king. Unshakable, untouchable. Jesus is Lord and no one else is. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that, friends, we can click off the news, I hope, and go right to sleep with peace in our hearts, knowing that Jesus is Lord. We are citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What a comfort. I know it's been comforting to me. And the third thing we'll read again in Daniel. Um, I just I want you to know the importance and just feel the importance of the first three chapters. First 11, really, but the first three chapters, especially of the Bible. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. All the themes of Scripture flow from those three passages, that, that section. It's the fountain of the whole Bible story. And so, if you do read anything else besides the chapter of Daniel this week, maybe read through Genesis 1 to 3 again. I want you to notice as you read, especially how Adam is the image of God, how he's created to have dominion, rulership over the beasts of the field. He is to rule. And then in Genesis 3, notice how the craftiest of the beasts, a snake, who we later read as being manipulated by Satan, the snake gets him to listen to his deceptive words instead of God's words. And it follows, what follows is the dethroning of Adam and an enthroning of Satan, the craftiest of the beasts, as the ruler of this world. And just like Satan used the beast 
the snake to accomplish his dark purposes to deceive the human race, so Satan now influences all humans everywhere who have not bowed the knee to Jesus through lies, through deception, through temptation, through the lust of power. Have you ever heard the saying, power always corrupts? Kings with great power become beast-like. That's the story of Daniel. Why? Well, that's Satan's plan. And he seeks to get humans to become beast-like as they give in to his lies and choose to walk into pride and reject the Lord. We become like animals when we give ourselves to sin and to the flesh. We become controlled by various passions and pleasures, by lust, by gluttony by anger and rage. We just give in to every impulse like animals. They just do by instinct, by the flesh, what they desire. And yet, Daniel 7 shows us Genesis 3 in reverse. There you see a faithful son of Adam who does not bow to the reign of Satan, who does not worship the beast or the image, and God has given him authority, Jesus, and dominion over the beast's once more jesus is on the throne so genesis 3 is reversed by the message of daniel and so if you can read genesis 1 2 and 3 and try to look for those themes and know at the end of the day if you get nothing else from the study of daniel you remember what was daniel about in five years i hope you know jesus wins satan does not Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that we serve Jesus, a risen Lord. I pray that you would bless our time studying Daniel. Lord, we went a little long today, but Daniel is a big book, and I just ask that you would, um, you would help us to, to learn what we need to from our study of Daniel. Be with our, our hearts. May we worship and celebrate the risen King together. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.